Okay, uh, welcome folks. Uh, this is the first session, uh, a panel session on an open ontology repository, uh, rationale, expectations, and requirements. Uh, what I'd like you to do is uh, uh, look on the first slide that I have, um, and uh, we're going to uh, cover these very quickly in order to uh, have time for the panelists. Uh, uh, both uh, Fabian and I are the uh, co-chairs of this panel. Uh, if you'll look at the uh, agenda slide, I'm actually using my own personal deck here because I can't uh, connect to the uh, main deck. Uh, I want to draw people's attention uh, to uh, a couple items. Information, uh, today's call where, you, where we're pointing, uh, the Ontology uh, Summit mail list. Uh, if you're not a uh, participant, I would suggest uh, uh, joining and responding. A look ahead uh, to uh, the Ontology Summit 2008, which will take place at NIST uh, uh, in Gaithersburg, Maryland, USA. Uh, have a number of sites there. Uh, the main site, uh, the NIST registration site, and the uh, emerging agenda site for the face-to-face -face there. And also I want to let everyone know about next week, uh, we'll have the second session on uh, this OOR Rationale Expectations and Requirements panel. Uh, different panelists, but uh, content providers too, or potential content providers. Uh, and then finally, uh, the April 7th session, uh, which is actually 2008, not 2007, uh, Developing an Ontology of Ontologies. Uh, now, that will be uh, hosted by uh, Barry Smith and uh, Michael Gruninger. Today's focus uh, is on potential content providers. And what we want to cover uh, or keep in mind are rationale, expectations, and requirements for, for such a repository. Uh, next slide is rationale. Why are we interested in this uh, open ontology repository and what purpose does it serve? Uh, isn't the semantic web notion of these uh, distributed uh, islands of uh, semantics ontologies uh, sufficient as a de facto repository? Some questions, right? Uh, we, we think that we need a little bit more infrastructure and services. Uh, we're supportive of the semantic web, but we think we need a little bit more. Uh, so maybe the real rationale is uh, enabling you to find ontology simply. Uh, if it's registered, then maybe you know who built it. Uh, we hope that it's got metadata so you know the purpose and the language that it's expressed in, and potentially the user group. You want to know also what the content subject area is. And you would like mappings or services that would provide mappings so you can connect it to other ontologies. You also want to make sure that there's some uh, gauged value and quality, uh, perhaps by uh, recognized criteria. Uh, the gateway folks are focusing on that, the gateway and quality uh, session or breakout group. Uh, the services are going to be important. You want to be able to map and be mapped. You want to find and be found. Uh, 
you want to review and potentially certify and be reviewed and certified. You want to hook your own services in and prospectively use the services others have hooked in. And potentially you want to be able to link to multiple common middle and upper ontologies, not just map across domain ontologies. And you want your ontology to be easily extended. Next slide is expectations. Will the OOR solve everything? No. How will we stage our wants and needs? Can we provide good service to end users, to content providers, to application developers? Well, requirements will say how. What do content providers in particular today and next week expect to find and use out of such a repository? And what do they expect to be able to provide? Next slide, requirements. What do we need now, today, tomorrow, next week? What do end users need? What do content providers need? What do application developers need? We've called out four or five, actually, working groups here. Architecture. Uh, what's the architecture of this OOR, potentially? Uh, ontology of ontologies. What's the uh, backbone? How do you describe what you're going to actually have uh, uh, registered and uh, contained in repository here? Quality and gateway criteria. What kinds of things do we want in this, and do we want to uh, capture metrics on that quality? We want a review process. Do we want to allow everything in? And state of the art. What is the state of the art, both in terms of uh, ontologies, uh, but also what we can do with ontologies? And then uh, finally, the uh, OOR uh, in particular group, which uh, this session. Uh, partially represents we're 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 uh, co co founding this or co uh, sponsoring this with the ontology summit, but the OOR is addressing the, uh, the gamut of making this real. In other words, requirements, design, implementation, and uh, issues with long-term maintenance and enhancement. We want to provide a technical roadmap and realization. And how, uh, also be concerned about how do we ensure long-term value, quality, commitment, and progress. And then all of this, of course, wants to be addressing this communique that will be a joint statement uh, that we uh, agreed to at the end of the Ontology Summit 2008 about the Open Ontology Repository. Uh, next slide is just the panelists. Um, uh, I welcome the panelists, and uh, I welcome uh, Fabian, who uh, will now uh, introduce the panelists and uh, begin uh, ad administering uh, the panel. Fabian? Thank you. Um, well, we will start with Bill Buck. Um, Bill Buck comes from the University of California, and um, actually, I think he's still... Uh, fairly new to the game because um, I remember two years ago I met him and he was getting a first introduction to ontology but since then he became a major force in the biomedical community and uh, especially applying ontologies in the uh, realm of um, bioimages he belongs to the biomedical informatics research network and works for the National Center of 
for microscopy and imaging research. We'll take from here. So thank you for the introduction, Fabian. Um, I'm going to give a presentation that's mostly focused on how we've been using ontologies. It's not going to talk much about the content or any of the details that we'd want out of an OOR, but it helps to give you a context for what we've been trying to do. Um, just want to make sure I'm refreshing here. Yeah, okay, good. I'll follow along in the VNC view of things. Um, so our goal here, just looking at the title slide, is to use ontologies as a means of decomposing the complex semantic elements that you find when you're trying to annotate data. And on the first slide, you'll see – no, that's okay. Sorry. <laughs> the first slide, you'll see that um, in one of the contexts we're trying to do this is the, the Biomedical Informatics Research Network. That's a large uh, NIH-funded grid science project uh, focused on providing uh, the infrastructure needed to enable distance collaborations amongst researchers. And it provides uh, staffing for the core uh, to, to both develop and maintain the infrastructure and to build out grid-specific uh, support for both grid storage and grid computation. Uh, it's focused really on the, the, the IT core of Burn is focused on providing both. Uh, so far, using test beds that are driving the requirements, which are focused on neuroimaging, doing uh, collective uh, analytical work on shared and very, very large neuroimaging data sets, both functional neuroimaging and uh, uh, more static morphometry, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, and then finally, uh, the idea is that the infrastructure will also host the data and the tools that are produced as a part of these remote collaborative relationships. Uh, next slide, please. So as I mentioned, the burn, which is really just one of the three contexts where we've been trying to apply this principle of using ontologies to uh, come up with more formal descriptions of the semantic entities and the data sets we're dealing with. Uh, within burn, uh, the project, as I just described it, is driven by a variety of test beds that were created uh, so as to help specify what real-world requirements would be for scientists trying to do this sort of collaboration. There's morphometry burn was the first that focused on uh, analysis of static uh, morphometric MRI uh, as applied to questions having to do with neurodegenerative disease. Uh, function burn came next. That's using fMRI data sets. Uh, most of them correlated with a variety of behavioral and cognitive assessments. Um, behavioral assessments frequently performed uh, while the fMRI is going on. Cognitive assessments usually associated either with a patient's medical history or done in the context of a particular study. And then mouse burn was the most recent. I think it started four years ago, maybe four, three, yeah, more than three, four or five years ago. Uh, and it focuses on a variety of image-related projects, neuroimaging-related projects, from the EM level on through um, high-resolution MRI, in mouse models of a variety of neurodegenerative diseases. Um, just to say before we move on, that these are the three test beds you've had so far. Additional collaborations have been added in. For instance, the national, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I forget what the D is for, but NDAR, it's an autism research uh, collaborative. And the national primary research centers have also joined in 
Uh, again, so far with the focus being on neuro, but uh, in the coming years, uh, NCRR, the primary funding source uh, in NIH for burn, is looking to broaden the scope. Uh, next slide, please. So if I just pick out uh, the North Burn project as an example, it gives you some sense of the kind of research questions they're trying to ask. The scientific, one of the scientific goals within Morse Burn for a collection of the researchers there is to correlate, in, in a general sense, to correlate neuroanatomical data, uh, in this case static uh, neuroanatomical data, but both standard MRI of brain regions as well as uh, diffusion uh, DTI uh, imaging, which shows you something about the connectivity of the brain, correlated with clinical assessment reports. And one of the questions they were trying to ask was whether there's a correlation between diagnosed unipolar depression earlier in life and a mild cognitive impairment, impairment and or Alzheimer's disease or in specific Alzheimer's disease-related dementia later in life. And, uh, again, the methods they're using are multi-site structural MRI, uh, multi-site uh, meaning multi-research sites across the country, um, and that these require uh, trading of uh, all sorts of data used to normalize the acquisition and uh, uh, calibration acquisition analysis of those instruments at different sites, and then uh, visualization packages and computer vision packages used for analysis that get used within the grid environment, so data gets passed back and forth amongst different groups. Different groups within the collaborative have different analytical packages, things like that. Um, and then finally, within Burn providing a shared semantic framework with which to describe the data so that it can be collective, ultimately collectively um, queried upon. And uh, the, the bottom just shows the sites that are involved in, in Morthburn. I think there might even be one or two more than that. And some of those sites, there's more than one lab. So it's quite a bit of uh, interactive collaboration. Next slide, please. And the point here is that the bottom line is the assessments that are um, – collected on patients, underlying them is a measurement of a variety of complex functions. And it's understanding how those assessments tell us about the state of that function uh, that helps us to understand how each particular function is affected in a given disease. Uh, it also has to, helps to um, explicate how you take clinical diagnosis, which is based on some of the metrics that come out of these assessments or instruments, as they're called, and, um, and, and tie that to a particular stage of particular disease. And we need to have this uh, described down to the level of function, which neither a description of disease stage or the assessments typically even talk about. And that's one of the things we look to get out of the ontology. And this is true when we apply ontology to describe other types of data, too, like uh, cell biology data. But there are also things implicit about certain cell types that are not there in the data, but we do want to use when we come to sort and query the data. Um, next slide, please. Could you call out the slide number also, if you please? Oh, sure, yes. So this is slide five where I'm at. That's good. Um, and good. this just gives you some sense of the kind of complex questions and complex queries that need to be run against the data when you ask what seems on the surface to be a relatively simple question, like what might be the long-term effects of depression and does it relate to uh, uh, mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease later in life. Uh, I'm not going to call out all of these, but this gives you some sense of the complexity involved. Uh, you need to be able to get into some detail about the uh, volumetric data that's collected in MRIs 
that's related to specific diagnoses, like which regions show connectivity changes across a variety of diagnoses. Uh, you need to um, uh, be able to center in on which brain regions show particular structural differences, and you want to have those described well in a well in a semantically uh, uh, commensurate way across the data sets. So, for instance, uh, what differences in measure, size, trans, neurotransmitter uh, uh, concentration, connections across regions, which of these things vary, and uh, with particular disease diagnoses and uh, other parameters that, that might be collected, for instance, genetic information. And finally, uh, to examine volumetric and connectivity changes in humans with genotyping data for some particular, in this case, particular gene associated with Alzheimer's disease, uh, whether you can see that change over time. Uh, slide six, please. Next slide. So this just gives you a, a very rough, hewn sense of how Byrne has created a, uh, an infrastructure that has a repository at its heart for all the data being collected and that critical to the uh, both storage, manipulation, and sharing and querying of the data is the semantic layer that we lay on top by annotating the data, data from the shared ontology we built called BurnLex. Uh, next slide, please. Eight. And by creating that shared semantic layer, it, it helps to enable building a variety of applications that can all get at that data in a, in a, in a query from a shared semantic context. So there is a uh, – Burn has a uh, federated query mediator that enables people – for instance, this is an example of a tool from the mouse burn, the mouse burn atlasing tool, is where it's possible via the mediator to get to a variety – all have been described with the shared semantic context. And queries can be, get posed in the context of the ontology, sent to the mediator, and then through a, a process that's done ahead of time to map uh, the data sources into the mediator and the, the actual tuples within those sources uh, to the description in the ontology, we're able to pull back data from the different sites that's relevant to the query. Uh, next slide, please. Nine, I believe it would be. And so, again, the ontology that we created uh, for this purpose is called the Brenlux. Um, it's uh, curated by a cross-burn ontology task force. Uh, it, as best as possible, we've tried to reutilize terminologies, taxonomies, and other ontologies uh, that are in common use within the field. So far, we've focused on neuro, so it's been mostly leaning toward things that have been used in, in, by neuroscientists to describe data. Uh, we uh, have both the entities and the relations, the object properties in our speech, if you will, that are specifically asked for by the researchers in Bern. So we're trying to stay very focused on what our application requirements are, which is to serve the needs of the researchers trying to share data. And some of their needs require getting the data. In fact, most of them have needs that require getting the data outside of Bern. So the scope of the ontology needs to be able to cover things that might not necessarily be data that's getting annotated within Bern. Um, it's, um, we've been getting advice from the National Center for Biomedical Ontologies, as Fabian had mentioned, really from the outset several years back, we connected with NCBO uh, right at the at, – I think we were actually the, the first of the um, community-oriented uh, 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 sort of dissemination sessions where we were brought in and um, described what we were trying to do and then got some feedback uh, that immediately uh, – that had to be about three years ago now 
from Mark Eason, uh, Barry, and Susie Lewis and others, and Fabian was there as well. Uh, and then finally, we, everything we're doing, we're representing an owl, uh, and we have various criteria for, uh, you know, species. It has to be owl DL, uh, has to be uh, classifiable according to pellet and things like that. Next slide, please, Ken. This is just the composition of the ontology task force. It really is composed from people across all of the test beds. Uh, next slide, please, 11. And uh, this slide kind of got concatenated. Uh, it, it, you know, it's got animation in it to help give you the sense of the idea being that we describe entities in a taxonomy. That's what you're seeing vertically here. And then we go in and, and add in the object properties required Again, driven by what users say they need to be able to do with the data, how they need to query it, how they need to sort it, and how they need to um, federate it with other data sets. So here you're looking at anatomy, cell type, uh, larger anatomical composition, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, smaller than cell, like subcellular components, in neurons in particular, and then finally molecules, and then how they relate to one another. Next slide, please, 12. And this just gives you a, a you know, five-mile-high view of Burnlex. Uh, it's composed of multiple owl files. Uh, the core is just a simple uh, skeleton that has uh, owl import statements for all the things you see below. Um, and, again, right now what we're curating immediately with inside Burn uh, are these five uh, light blue domains that you see up top. Uh, some of them have been heavily drawn from existing terminologies, anatomy, so far covering really neuroanatomy, uh, is drawn from something called neuronames, a, a sort of taxonomy of uh, uh, brain regions in, in uh, mammals that was, has been under development for over two decades now. But we've expressed it in OWL and done it so that it meets the criteria that we have for a well-expressed OWL ontology. And then the things below the dotted line are other uh, ontological, uh, ontology modules that we're getting from outside the burn project itself. Some are other projects we work on, like the NIP project, that's Neuroscience Information Framework, and others are community projects, many of which we're either collaborating with or contributing to. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, that, this is the last slide. This is just to mention there's this other project. So burn is very much focused on the data being produced by burn researchers. The Neuroscience Information Framework project is much more largely scoped, and we're using repurposing the ontologies we've created within Burn and then adding to them and adding additional modules to cover a much more broadly scoped project where we're, the goal here is NIH is funding a search system that can federate the variety of resources that they've funded over the years, especially under the NIH Blueprint Project, which is a sort of consortium of NIH institutes and centers who pool pooling funds to create shared resources like knockout mice resources or antibodies or brain banks, tissue banks, cell banks, things like that, as well as analyzed data repositories that uh, provide added value. So anyway, that's all I have to say for today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Phil. Okay, let's go to Evan. Evan, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, great. Evan works as a National Institute of Standards and Technology, and uh, he's deeply involved in the development of OWL and also works uh, with the UML community, so he will give us this perspective. Yes, thank you. Uh, um, 
So today I'm wearing my um, OMG Ontology Platform Special Interest Group chair hat, um, and I'm going to try and channel a bit uh, my co-chair, Elisa Kendall of Sandpiper Software, uh, because she actually brought the requirements that motivated our interest in this area originally about a year ago. Um, so yes, th this our, our interest in, in this sort of started then, um, and when we started talking about it um, at OMG, we found out that a number of groups at OMG are interested in building a repository of conceptual models. Um, what I'm going to do is give you sort of a, some background of OMG first so that you can understand sort of what the parameters are of what we can do there and where the interests come from. Next slide, please. So um, OMG was sort of formed, uh, you know, just after sort of the failure of the Open Systems Integration Activity. Um, and some of the ways that they do business reflect, I think, um, the attitudes at the time. Um, so there was an emphasis on having standards that would get implemented and also in having vendors uh, have an important role and therefore feeling that they had a stake in the standards that were developed. Um, and that way you'd, you'd sort of get better uh, support implementations, support for um, the specifications. Um, and it's always been... Uh, interested in this idea of supporting integration. Um, originally, it was focused on middleware, object-oriented middleware, but uh, it really, there's always been a modeling aspect and an abstraction from that particular middleware, uh, and that has kind of, we've moved up the abstraction levels until now we're talking about ontologies and vocabularies. Um, a number of things which are sort of different than the ISO world uh, that I was saying was the context of the formation of this group, um, that specifications would be freely available. There's no charge for them. Once they're done, they're free, and anybody can get them. Um, emphasis on implementations existing, and everything is sort of driven by the members. It is a consortium, and while there is some staff that, that certainly steer things, really the goals and the requirements of the members and those are both vendors and users, uh, drive what the OMG does. Next uh, slide three, please. Okay, and um, the, the members are pretty diverse. Um, this is just a sampling. There are over 400 members of the OMG, uh, and the members are the companies or, uh, or organizations. And you see here that there are, you know, software um, houses. There are uh, very large IT companies. Um, there are government agencies, um, and then there are um, people, uh, organizations from specific domains like banking uh, or insurance or even um, sort of agricultural informatics and equipment, uh, John Deere. Um, and so, so there's a very diverse set of, of people involved and organizations involved and interests and this creates sort of a rich set of, of things that, that people acknowledge and areas that people want to explore, but it also gives rise to some conflict, as you might imagine. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so here's a sampling of some of the specifications, um, starting with the with Corvo, which was the original middleware, which is sort of what 
what this grew up around. But uh, quickly moving on to object modeling specs, uh, data modeling specs like the common warehouse meta model, and now the IMM is sort of taking over that area, uh, which will allow use of ER modeling and other techniques within sort of the um, OMG infrastructure. And that infrastructure is provided by things like the MOS and XMI, uh, which are the common sort of base on which uh, all, all these meta models are built, which are, are what most of the specifications now at OMG are, meta models. Um, recently, BPMI merged with OMG, so now we have more business modeling going on there. Uh, BPMN came as a result of that. So we have business process modeling. Um, we have this sort of high-level um, tool, uh, well, SBBR is, is sort of more of a linguistic view on how to do the kinds of things that we do in ontology land. Um, and it's tied with some of the um, ISO specs for terminology. And I'll talk more about that later. And then ODM, which gives us some meta models for uh, ontology languages like OWL and Common Logic. Um, next slide, please. Okay, jumping from the OMG background to sort of why we're interested in this, in having a conceptual modeling repository at OMG. Um, and these are Elisa's slides, so I'm sorry of channeling her now. Um, so she's been running into uh, a lot of needs to have sort of reusable ontologies that generally represent things that there are standards for, either very basic things um, like models for uh, identifying countries or currency codes or things like that, uh, or domain-specific things like the whole insurance set of standards that came out of Accord. Um, and she's been tying this with um, other specifications at OMG and trying to map between these things, and that's sort of a user, her user-driven uh, motivation. Next slide, please. Um, but what are some of the issues uh, motivating um, having a repository at OMG for this? Um, well, one of the things is that the ontologies developed as part of the DARPA DAML project are sort of getting out of date. Um, you know, countries are changing, the, the boundaries are changing, there are new countries out there, and that you need to have uh, specifications that represent the new standards that capture that. Um, a lot of the stand, a lot of the ontologies that are, that are out there um, have shortcomings for using it for her, the applications that she sees, um, either the domain specific or they're part of research projects that maybe are not, they're not as robust as they should be. Um, and certainly there's a maintenance problem. Next slide, please. So what, what's the kind of content um, that we are thinking about having in this OMG conceptual model repository? Uh, well, from the business side, um, there's an interest in having these sort of T-box-like things, terminology-like things. Um, that describe time and date from a business perspective and monetary amount, um, units of measure, quantities. And then for their business rule aspect, um, they need something so that they can capture um, arithmetic operations and 
adding and subtracting members from things and that sort of thing. Uh, on our side, um, the standards that I talked about before, all kinds of codes that are out there for languages and countries and uh, postal codes, um, currency. And then if you want to try and map all this stuff to um, the ontology stuff with some of these other things, um, it would be good to sort of have meta models in the ontology form uh, to do that. And so that's what the 1087 is. That's actually the ISO terminology spec that sort of underlies SBVR. Uh, and then there's a whole set of metadata specs that are of interest when you're trying to um, capture information about information. Next slide, please. Slide number eight. Um, so um, what are the tools available for us to create and manage these things at OMG? Um, generally, they're standards processes, and these are kind of heavyweight. Uh, the request for proposal process is, starts out making requirements, and it has a number of steps, and I'll show you that in a minute. Um, request for comment process is lighter weight. The idea is that people come in with some um, already existing specification, and, and then it just gets approved or not. Um, it's higher risk, but it takes less time. Um, are there other mechanisms that we need to add? Um, maybe. Um, but if we do that, we don't have any processes for sort of managing the gatekeeping um, or anything else. So um, next slide, please. Slide nine. Um, here's the this, this shows the RFP process and shows all the steps. And in fact, there is iteration going on. And this actually happens. Um, the first part is, and there, there are different roles um, that take, that deal with the advancing these process steps. So the first um, thing when you define the requirements, developing the RFP essentially is everybody's involved in, in defining these requirements. Um, but when you move over to the red steps, well, that's when the vendors who are going to eventually implement something take over and sort of define the design with only a voting role for the other members. Um, later on, we have more administrative uh, roles that that you know, ensure the quality, do some of this, um, making sure that things fit with other standards and make sure that they meet basic requirements. Um, and so for the RFC process, you'd sort of start in the middle of this, the final submission step. Um, next slide, please. And so what are some of the challenges for doing this at OMG? Um, well, there's this implementation requirement. What does it mean to implement one of these things? Um, is it simply enough to be able to load this and display it in your tool or reason with it in your tool when it's um, conformant with one of the OMG metamodels? Uh, it's not clear. There's no one's tested this, these kind of reusable libraries as, as a product at OMG. Um, OMG also has a bicameral structure. We have a domain side and a platform side. Basically, it, it was you know users and vendors originally, and now this is more of a problem than an advantage. You know, the concerns here cross these things that people, stakeholders, are in both um, houses, but you have to pick one. Um, for our first one that I'll talk about in a minute, uh, we've, we're going on the domain side. Um, and then there are all these different models that we want to have to represent this. How do we link them? Um, and those different models have different requirements. 
Um, how can we have these different aspects and yet model the same concepts? Uh, and then finally, maintenance just isn't very well supported by the, the current processes and staff. Slide 11, please. Evan, you need to wrap it up. Oh. Okay. Um, okay, well, I'm going to skip this because I'm sure other people will talk about it. So next slide, please. Okay, so what we have done is um, we've issued an RFP and an RFI. So we've started that heavyweight process, and we've also um, created a process to get feedback from um, lessons learned from the people working on the RFP and from um, other people who have useful input that we could use. Next slide. And so this, this first one is this small scoped um, RFP for date-time concepts, and there is the link, and you can follow this later. Uh, next slide, please. And then the RFI, um, which has an emphasis on, on these ideas of provenance, effectivity, and evolution. I can't really go into that, so next slide. Um, and these are some detailed areas that we sort of called out to get feedback on. Next slide. I think the important thing about the RFI is that anybody can respond. So uh, for an RFP, you have to be an OMG member um, to be involved. For an RFI, uh, we would like anybody and everybody who has something to contribute to respond to that. And these are the people you can contact about any of these activities. And I'm finished. Thank you, Adam. Um, Thank you. I Again, want to uh, suggest to people who have questions to uh, log into the chat room uh, and write them down there. Um, and, um, Fabian, could you speak up a little? Otherwise, the, it, your, the recording will come out fairly weak. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, I just wanted to remind everybody to ch log into the chat room and uh, write the questions down there. Um, the next, Our next speaker is... John McCarthy from Berkeley, and he's going to talk about a, a prototype for an extended metadata, metadata registry, and uh, also Bert Hall is going to talk about standards connected to that project. Uh, thank you, Fabian. Uh, uh, the uh, extended metadata registry project uh, uh, initiated out of, out of LBL has, in fact, uh, uh, as, as part of its uh, responsibilities, has, has actually tried to implement uh, a, uh, an ontology rep, uh, repository as part of a larger metadata registry. Uh, slide, slide two, uh, please. So uh, I think that we share a lot of goals with uh, with the OOR uh, uh, effort, and uh, whereas uh, as I understand it, the OOR is trying to collect useful ontologies, uh, facilitate harmonization, and uh, come up with some standards for representation and characterization of those ontologies. We, too, are in the Extended Metadata Registry Project uh, trying to extend an existing metadata registry standard, that is ISO uh, 
IEC 111.79, which has been around for a while now and is mainly targeted at uh, data elements. It kind of comes out of the old data dictionary tradition, uh, which has been in use at places like the Environmental Protection Agency, the National Cancer Institute, Department of Defense for at least a decade. But to incorporate and manage uh, concept information, uh, everything from code sets of valid, valid values to terminologies and thesauri and ontologies that actually help people uh, find and uh, make use of uh, data. So uh, we do that using a shared meta model for both the, the concepts, the terminologies, the ontologies, and the metadata about the, the underlying data. Uh, on to slide three, please. Uh, the project is really a couple of things. On the one hand, it's a set of collaborative initiatives with a number of different uh, participants, and the collaboration goes back to 2003. Uh, a number of uh, principals who've been meeting at LBL since uh, meeting in Berkeley since 2004, and it's done in close cooperation with the ANSI L8 uh, working group and this uh, working group two within the uh, IC JTC one. Uh, ISO standard side. At the same time, we've got a, a, uh, an open source prototype that is a, uh, a reference implementation and test bed system in order to uh, see how we might implement uh, these new ideas and also uh, how can we assemble semantic metadata from a, a very diverse set of sources which are themselves implemented in, in different languages and have different structures. We're also trying to explore new thematic technologies uh, like RDF and OWL and CL and to demonstrate new kinds of capabilities that it's actually trying to do sort of ontology, life cycle management and harmonization in the same spirit as administering data elements in the 111.79 standard. Uh, next slide four. Um, this is just to kind of the motivation of what we're we're actually trying to in the in the long term uh, harmonize data. So to, to uh, from from our standpoint, the ontology work is really a means to this end. We want to have a wide variety of different kinds of users, every, everywhere from legislators and policy analysts right down to individual scientists, be able to shoot, uh, share data and have common understandings about its meaning. Next slide, number five. Um, this, uh, this is a little example that, that uh, tries to help motivate what we're trying to do and show how uh, having semantic inf information like an ontology can can help do that. In this case, some kind of query about finding contaminants 
in water that's downstream of a particular source uh, can use a number of different kinds of uh, semantic information here about the uh, subsumption that mercury is a chemical contaminant, the uh, measurement units that are uh, involved, uh, the time period that's involved, and so forth all of which need to be represented in a systematic way. Next slide, number six. So in order to do that, prove uh, the re representation of relationships between data and concept structures and between uh, components within the concept structures, that is, for, for example, from one ontology to another, for, for an ontology to a to a simple terminology. Um, we're uh, registering and, and managing that data and trying to give more rigorous and formal specification to uh, how it's stored and used. Next slide, number seven. So we actually have loaded uh, a number of different uh, concept systems all the way from some fairly modest-sized ones, the currency codes and the country codes, uh, to more kind of middle-sized, uh, the GEMIT multilingual environmental thesaurus and the mouse anatomy and uh, uh, SIC and, and North American Industrial Classification System classification codes, all the way up to a very large uh, multi-purpose ontology, the Omega ontology. Next slide, number eight. Um, we're considering uh, additions to this as well. I won't go into all the different ones, but that'll that'll give you an idea on, uh, on slide number eight. Slide number nine, please, um, calls out some particular challenges that uh, trying to load the Omega ontology uh, illustrated. Um, as some of you may know, it's a terminological ontology uh, reorganizing and synthesizing WordNet and Microcosmos uh, and trying to add a higher level ontology in order to organize multiple ontologies. So it partakes of some of the same flavor as the OR proposed exercise. We found that in having these different ontology languages is certainly challenging. Uh, we had to do some scrambling and rearrangement of our um, facets and, and attributes in the, in the meta model. And then it just uh, even using fairly uh, capacious hardware and software, uh, loading 4 million files that uh, uh, took nearly a week to process and load this particular ontology. John, two minutes left. Okay. Uh, on slide 10, uh, I've shown the uh, prototype architecture that uh, we've implemented uh, and the particular uh, software selections, all open source, that we've used to do that. Slide number 11, please. Uh, We've done quite a lot of modeling of how to represent uh, ontologies as well as other kinds of metadata. This is just one, and for 
more details on that, you can go to xmdr.org for more diagrams and more details. Uh, slide 12 shows what you'll see on the first page of that. Uh, the uh, website allows you to download the code, download some of the content, look at the wiki, which has these diagrams and so forth. Slide number 13. Um, calls out some of the challenges that I think will face the OOR the same way that they, they have ours. Uh, but in the interest of time, I'll go right on to slide 13, which uh, suggests that a close collaboration of OOR with the XMDR project might be a good idea. Uh, for the XMDR project, uh, having uh, more chance to interact with you folks will give us more ontology experts and ideas and experience, more ontologies to exercise the express, uh, expressivity of what we're trying to do and our tools on refining the representation and mapping. I think for the OOR project, uh, here's an already existing code base that could, use, could be used as a starting point, an initial set of diverse ontologies and some major collaborators, uh, mainly government organizations, both here and in Europe and Asia. Some real-world ontology applications and a standards-based approach that's proven itself uh, in the data element uh, domain. Uh, we've already at least got a start on uh, an extensive and fairly extensible OOR meta model. Finally, uh, the uh, slide 15, I have to give thanks and acknowledgement to uh, a few people who are on the call and others who aren't here. Bruce Bargmeyer is uh, at, at another meeting right now. Uh, Frank Olkin, who started out the project even before I was on it, uh, now at the National Science Foundation. Uh, Kevin Keck is on the call, and he's our current designer, initial designer and, and doing the implementation, as well as a lot of the standards work. Uh, Harold Fulbrick, who I hope might be on the call, uh, helped out a lot with FlexGrid and the model development. We're also, as I mentioned, working close, closely with the American and, and international standards committees. And we've been supported by the National Science Foundation with that grant that you see there, as well as the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Defense and National Cancer Institute. Thanks. Thank you, John. Um, may, may I ask whether uh, Susie Lewis has joined us? Susie, if you're there, please press star three. Say hello. Okay. Maybe. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Um, uh, our next speaker is Ken Beklowski from Northeastern University, and he is going to talk about his experience with applying ontology-based methods uh, in health sciences. Hello. Uh, can you hear me okay now? Yes, wonderful. Good. Uh, if you go to, uh, well, this is just slide one, uh, the... Um, issue that uh, 
my colleague Neil Sarkar and I are addressing is the uh, problem of uh, organism-based disease, that is, uh, diseases that are uh, that have disease vectors like mosquitoes and uh, mice, using um, biological taxonomy and environmental ontology. So you want to what I'm going to do here is give you an idea of all the various ontologies, uh, source information, the, the kind of background that one needs in order to study the, uh, the issues that come up and, uh, in, the, uh, in studying these diseases, these uh, infectious diseases. So what this really, you could really think of this talk as being a kind of a case study illustrating the, the rationale for uh, having an, an OOR and also to, to try to uh, look at, a, at this one case uh, to see the kinds of uh, requirements and needs that, uh, the, uh, that an OOR should satisfy for, uh, for this kind of problem. So going to slide two, um, I'll give you some background about this, the research issues in this area. Um, the, uh, the first point is that biomedical knowledge relevant to uh, infectious diseases is, is currently in quite a variety of heterogeneous data sources. They, uh, health reports, for example, are, are email for the most part. Citation databases are a very different kind of uh, um, source of information. And then uh, there are molecular databases that uh, are still quite, you know, different from the other two. So you can see that just these three examples of the kinds of knowledge that's relevant uh, illustrate the very, uh, very significant variety of formats and uh, protocols that you have to address in uh, in a study like this. Um, the um, in addition, when you're understand, to understand infectious diseases, you also have to have environmental and geolocation information. The, these diseases take place in a particular location where the uh, kinds of uh, animals that uh, live there and they live in a certain environment all have to be considered. Uh, biodiversity is the study of, of all the different kinds of uh, life on Earth, the, uh, the species and how they're classified. And... Uh, this uh, biodiversity is a is a big community of individuals um, who study this. The biomedical community is another community, and these communities are not entirely uh, compatible with one another. There's certainly some overlap uh, where in biomedical in the biomedical community they study model organisms, but they they tend not to study uh, all of the organisms. Whereas in the biodiversity community they study all organisms. Um, so you can see there's there's going to be a difference of point of view and two different communities have arisen, um, each with their own requirements and their own uh, data sources and ontologies. Moving to slide three, um, other uh, for the uh, for diseases, um, there's a, a large research literature. Um, Medline is the uh, Citation Index for the uh, National Library of Medicine. Uh, and Agricola is a citation index for the National Agricultural Library. Um, the Agricult National Agricultural Library is a big source for biodiversity information, um, which is uh, 
complementary in many ways to the kinds of citations uh, that are available in Medline. Uh, then there are, of course, health reports that come from uh, international organizations like the World Health Organization and the uh, International Society for Infectious Diseases. Uh, moving on to slide four, um, biodiversity uh, has a, a large number of sources that I've just, I just give you a few of them here. Um, there's the Biodiversity Heritage Library. Uh, there's a global biodiversity information facility that's hosted at, uh, in Denmark. And then a new project that started uh, just in the last uh, year, Encyclopedia of Life, uh, which my uh, uh, colleague Neil Sarkar is, uh, is heavily involved in at the uh, Marine Biological Laboratory. But there are many others. And, and in fact, there are, there are a large number of projects that go under the name Encyclopedia of Life. So it, that, that name, Encyclopedia of Life, all by itself is ambiguous. Um, moving on to slide five, there's still other background ontologies that have to be considered. Um, there's, of course, GenBank, which uh, is an important uh, taxonomy associated with molecular data. And environmental data is, in a, is being... Uh, 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 just now coming out in a uh, in an emerging ontology, it's a it's an open biomedical ontology um, that uh, classifies uh, biological habitats. And then, um, of course, as I mentioned earlier, there's the geolocation issue uh, when a um, an information is given about location of a disease outbreak, for example, we'll mention a location. And so one, one needs uh, a resource that is going to uh, contain all of these uh, geolocations. But, uh, and uh, there's, there's several of these ontologies that are available. One of them that uh, we are planning to use is uh, GAS, this, uh, in, but it's just an instance hierarchy. It's not really a, an ontology. So um, let me give you an example of the kinds of issues, kinds of queries that uh, one would consider in a study of, uh, in this case, hantavirus disease outbreaks. Uh, hantavirus has a disease vector that is the deer mouse. Uh, the deer mouse is uh, a common species uh, that occurs throughout the world. There are two, the two most common occurring in the U.S. Uh, are listed in the right slide, right uh, image there. Um, uh, one in white and the other in black, and those those indicate um, locations where these uh, deer mouse uh, specimens were uh, studied by uh, biodiversity uh, in the biodiversity community. Slide. Slide. This is slide number six. And uh, on the other slide on the left is a geographic distribution of um, the... Um, disease outbreaks and genetic samples, uh, those genetic samples are for, uh, for deer mice. And uh, you'll notice that they're, they're not exactly coincident. There's some overlap of the two, but there's a significant number of disease outbreaks for which we have no uh, genetic samples. Uh, so these are the kinds of issues and, and kinds of studies one would like to uh, 
address. And as you can see, there's a large number of sources and uh, ontologies that have to be uh, have to be included and uh, mapped to one another in order to be able to make such uh, such uh, a determination. Ken, two minutes left. Two minutes left. Very good. I have just three slides left. Uh, the um, hosted ontology that we are, are working on is uh, derived from a number of sources. Uh, the uh, the purpose of it is to bring together information about uh, species and how they are organized and, and classified. Um, this, of course, is a... What slide are we on again? Oh, sorry, number seven. Um, slide number seven, the... Uh, we, our plan is to make this a, an OOR-hosted ontology uh, that brings together uh, a number of other ontologies and uh, uh, assists us in, in these uh, disease studies. In, uh, okay, now in slide eight and nine, those are the two last slides, here's where we uh, considered what it is that the OOR should have to provide. These are the you know, for this particular case study, um, for uh, for the one is for the developer and the other is for the end user. Um, so they have pretty important aspects uh, of what what is necessary. Uh, let me look at a few of these. Um, you need to have some ability to correct and extend your ontologies. So, uh, you need to curate and suggest changes. Um, you also need to be able to navigate across. Uh, information from a variety of sources. That's on slide eight. On slide nine, uh, and user requirements are often very similar. The developer and the end user have many of the same needs, um, but the end user also needs live feedback, ability to annotate relations and propose new terms for the developer to consider in, uh, uh, in, their, uh, in their work. And there are, there are a large number of individuals who are busy, very busy curating these, uh, these databases now. Uh, and uh, so the OOR could play a significant role in, in uh, all of these efforts. Um, so that's, that's, that's slide number nine, and that's the last slide. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Uh, I, uh, I'm there. I was just uh, had a bad connection. Are you done? I'm yes, I'm finished. Uh, okay. Thank you very much. I'm sorry about that. Something wrong with my phone. Um, Peter. Yes, I'm here. Okay. Peter is uh, going to talk about uh, bring us the perspective uh, of the ISO community. He is uh, from the Electronic Commerce Code Management Association, and he's a project leader of two ISO. Um, groups and uh, take it from here. Thank you. Oops, it's doing the slide up there. Okay. Can you go to the next slide? Okay, we're almost there. Let's go to the next slide. Oh, there we go. Basically, I'm going to talk about the NATO system. Um, this is something which is actually in operation today. And I'm going to be talking about the two ISO standards, the three ISO standards that have come out of uh, this work. Uh, NATO system has been around for some time, actually dates back to the First World War, and uh, 
in the U.S. alone represents over a $3 billion investment in describing things. So they have some pretty good experience over both the length of time and some considerable practice in how to describe. And, of course, they're describing tangible, tangible items. And not necessarily that complex, but uh, complex nonetheless. Uh, slide three, please. What's interesting is the system is used very widely internationally. Um, it's used by um, over 54 countries at the moment, and these countries all exchange data about items in a consistent manner in such a way they arrive at unambiguous descriptions. So it's worthy of investigation and, again, why we use it as a foundation for some of the ISO standards. Slide four, please. Basically, the, you know, the, the foundation of this system is to find a uh, standard for logistic information exchange. They cover about 16 million items of supply. They refer to an item supply effectively a specification of an item. Individual items themselves, part numbers, are called items of production. So if you think of a stock system where you have multiple um, suppliers that are providing the same type of item, and again, in their case, they define that as fit, form, and function. So if you have two spark plugs, but they basically have the same performance specifications, they may have different part numbers, but they will share the same stock number or item of supply. And they're, um, it's widely used. It's been used for some time. Multilingual, of course. Um, it has to um, cover all countries, and they all have to work in their own languages. Next slide. Slide five. Essentially, they um, set themselves a target of trying to uh, redesign their system about uh, five, six years ago, and um, we started working with them to do that. And what they were looking for is to get data faster, which is their most important concern, improve the quality of the data, and if they're lucky, uh, lower the cost of data acquisition. And the conclusion they came to is they had to find a way to move cataloging or codification, as they call it, out from the central place where it was being done back to the people who were actually manufacturing these items, therefore come up with a common language that everybody could use and understand. So their goal was a common metadata. That's become the EOTD, the ECMA Open Technical Dictionary. Of course, they're trying to stop you know, having to do data mappings. Interesting enough, though, they come with requirement specifications. Um, in industry, we call these templates, and these vary from one user to another. Um, there's no standard way to describe anything. They're simply a description that fits the requirement of a user. So uh, the example I tend to give is in the military, the description you want for a Jesus nut will be very different for a nut that holds on a wheel of a car. The consequences of that not, not performing are a little bit different in a helicopter because the Jesus nut holds on the blades of a helicopter to a nut that holds on, uh, and there's only one on a helicopter where there's several on your wheel. Next slide, slide six, please. And basically, this is the map of their uh, codification at source, and if you look at this, all they're really doing is they're automating the data supply chain in the same way that we actually move products around. So there's a a supply chain for items, and they want to make sure the data follows the items in the same way. What's interesting, though, is they've developed a method to generate a query to request data, 
and, of course, a data exchange in the reply. Uh, they found over the years that the one reason they were not getting data from their suppliers was that they were not asking for it in a way that the supplier understood what they were asking for. So, bottom line, if you don't ask, you don't get. Next slide. This is their model. It's actually very simple. Their master data, which is the NSNs, national stock numbers or NATO stock numbers. Everything is coded using concepts in a dictionary. And for each class of item, they conform to a specific template or identification guide. And these are described in their, their, their identification scheme are described in a book, which is called ACOG P1. Next slide. As you'd expect, the EOTD architecture follows their architecture exactly. Next slide. And in ISO 22745, we adopted the same architecture. And there's a series of standards. Part 40 describes the exchange of data. Part 30 is the identification guide. The dictionary is part 10, and the scheme is in part 13. Next slide. And, of course, their goal is common concept encoding, common metadata across all the supply chains, across design engineering, throughout the whole life cycle of a product. It doesn't just – and they've extended it beyond just describing tangible items. Now use it to describe services, but also, you know, essentially individuals, organizations, locations, goods, and services. In fact, somebody's trying to extend it to rules and regulations, which is a little bit more tenuous. Next slide. This is basically what they end up with. The properties, the metadata is encoded in a central dictionary. It's open, um, open access, and essentially it includes everything. Next slide. I think I have a slide of that. They make this um, as a requirement on their suppliers by being very specific in how they encode data. So you're going to see this statement by our contract clause is starting to appear on the back of purchase orders, which says, I bought something from you, which is great, but I need to be able to get access to the data that describes this item uh, for my ERP system or for whatever system I'm using, and you agree to provide it to me if I ask you for it. And this tells you how you're supposed to do that. Next slide. The Open Technical Dictionary is really a dictionary. Nothing more, nothing less at this stage. It links terms, definitions, images to concept identifiers. Next slide. And it has brought into it, we started, of course, with the NATO, NATO terminology, but since then we've actually pulled in terminology from many other sources. It's, you know, the main thing about the OTD is that the concept identifiers are in the public domain. Somebody breezed over this issue of intellectual property. Don't breeze over it. It's a big issue. Um, proprietary metadata causes the data coded with the proprietary metadata to become a joint work and jointly, is jointly owned by the owner of the metadata. That's not something you want to dismiss lightly. Um, free identifier resolution. And, of course, the EOTD does not develop any terminology. It simply collects it together, so you have to hyperlink back to the source standard. And, of course, it's multilingual, uh, multiple terms, definitions, images linked to a single concept identifier. Next Please slide. Two minutes left. Thank you. The dictionary contains identifiers and terminology, does not contain classifications, relationships, or constraints. Next slide.
This is just another summary of that. As you can see, we, somebody talked earlier about units of measure and currencies and qualifiers. UT seeks to bring all that together into a single repository. Again, there is enormous duplication in the EOTD, but duplication is dealt with through mapping, but also through ranking, that you're able, like Google, to rank which terms and definitions are actually used as opposed to theoretical constructs that nobody actually ends up using. Next slide. And the real purpose in our applications are is in ERP systems, they want quality systematic descriptions, and you get those by quality metadata at the, at the root, quality master data, and then using automatic tools to generate the descriptions. And there's lots of software today that will do that. Next slide. And this is an example of an ERP translation from very poor quality data to um, structured data. Next slide. And to make this more palatable to the suppliers, um, another standard was, was developed, ISO 8000, which is a way that suppliers, i.e. data providers, can indicate that they have data that meets the quality requirements um, specified under the standard. So this was their, their requirement. They want to be seen to be able to have data that meets this requirement, and ISO 8000 is a way for them to do that. Uh, ISO 8000 is being published, ISO 8001 and currently being... Uh, companies are being certified as being compliant. Next slide. Next slide. I think I'm out of time, so and this is my last time anyway. ISO 8000 basically groups together the master data, the dictionary, and identification guide. Pretty easy to comply with. That's my presentation. There are some additional slides at the end of this for anyone who wants to look at it, but basically just to introduce what the UTD is, and the ISO 8000 and ISO 22745. Thank you. You're welcome. Our next uh, speaker is Rex Brooks from uh, Starborn Communications Design, and he's going to represent the OASIS point. Sorry. Uh, our next speaker is Rex Brooks, and he's going to present uh, represent the OASIS point of view. Rex, are you there? Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, I didn't hear that back, but I'm going to presume that you can. Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Uh, the main conclusion and takeaway I want to present today is the idea that information technology integration and knowledge management can benefit greatly by the practical use of ontology. The specific content I represent is the OASIS Emergency Data Exchange Language Reference Information Model, or EDXL-REM. OASIS is the Organization for the Advancement of Structured Information Standards, and EDXL is developed in the Emergency Management Technical Committee in OASIS. Specifically, the group I'm working with, the Integrated Response Services Consortium, is implementing the EDXL family of specifications that the reference information model grows from. And we're using a service-oriented architecture registry repository for SOARR. Our SOARR uses the OASIS EDXML registry repository standards and is intended to work with the Open Ontology Repository Initiative. The EDXL RIM specification is planned to include an RDF schema and an OWL representation in addition to the more traditional <coughs> XML schema representation that's associated with OASIS standards. What my slideshow is that 
the way the architecture, registry, repository, and specifications fit together is probably one of the more important aspects that we need to uh, include in our requirements. I focus on each system component in turn, starting with the architecture in a system level view. System level view. To be specific, the EDXL reference information model is intended to provide the means to integrate the specifications in the EDXL family and provide the basis for integrating the system as a whole from the interior distributed data architecture organized by domain-specific nodes through the registry repository of services, service and provider, product providers, and standards, down to the applications which actually implement the specific standard. Next slide, please. This slide shows the overall system architecture in a visual illustration showing how a public preparedness portal can operate as an interface to the distributed network resources of the SOA RR. This slide shows how the portal can connect to the National Incident Management System and to the specific federated registry repositories included within this particular system. The key point of this slide is to show how the addition of semantic web technology can improve the searchability of the SOA RRs. This feature is not dependent on the EDXL RIM specification, but can be significantly improved by having that framework available. We think that the inclusion of services, service and product providers, standard development organizations, and guidance on using standards, as well as the information necessary to aggregate services together when needed, presents a significant improvement in overall preparedness. Next slide, please. This slide shows a simplified view of the basic public bind, bind mechanism of the SOA RR. Uh, and you can refer to it later. Next slide. This slide shows some early efforts reflected in the interim document object models, or DOMs, that have been used for a couple of EDXL specifications. This shows how complex the information structure can be and how we in the Emergency Management Technical Committee worked our way through the issues to understand these complexities and wrestle with the, these issues into a suitable structure. In this case, what is shown is the work that has gone into EDXL have the Hospital Availability Exchange Specification for building snapshot reports of hospital capabilities and supplies, and the EDXL RM, the Resource Messaging Specification for Resource Logistics Messages, e.g. messages that are used for requesting, offering, requisitioning, ordering, and returning resources. Next slide, please. This slide shows the final basic resource message specification on which the 16 separate predefined messages of the EDXL RM specification are based. This is offered to show how we developed common message exchange patterns using specific types of information. It was in the course of working on these specifications that it became clear that we would benefit from having a slightly more abstract collection of common components which can be used in all EDXL specifications as needed, reducing the, necessary, reducing the time necessary for developing future specifications and the time needed for developing implementation applications. Next slide. So we have worked on three EDXL. We're on slide number um, six now. Six, yes. Uh, so we've worked on three 
EDXL-specific standards this far, and we have two more in the practitioner steering group process that was recently shared on in our February 14th Ontolog Forum presentation. In addition, we have the Common Alerting Protocol, or CAP. We have also developed the EDXL distribution element, or EDXLDE, specification for routing information. EDXLDE serves as the wrapper in which the EDXL have, EDXL RM, and, ED, and common alerting protocol uh, messages can be um, considered payloads. And the EDXLDE offers routing information that allows these messages to be expedited. These components working together form a common set of methods that make using an OWL ontology representation advantageous or natural as a logical progression from our previous work. Next slide. This last slide develops or depicts the family relationships of EDXL in a graphic way. It also shows the principle of inclusiveness, which we think is a requirement for the open ontology repository. We don't suggest that the ontologies housed or connected by the OOR should have relationships as close as these. However, we do think that the idea of being able to find information based on semantically specifiable search criteria is the key to making the OR the OOR work for us. For instance, searching for EDXL-related specifications to be able to locate our work, and additional criteria such as logistics-related information should be able to narrow down the result set so that it would include EDXL-RM, for instance. And that's basically it. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, we actually have, you had another three minutes, so um, let me first ask whether Susanna Lewis uh, is available. If not, then I would guess that we just proceed to, to the questions. Okay, uh, let me bring up the screen where we show that we have 33 people online right now. Uh, to, uh, we would like people who want to make a comment or have a question to press 1-1 one, one on their keypad now uh, so that we could line up everyone. Uh, so if you have a question, uh, please press 1-1 one, one, uh, on your keypad. Also, uh, on the chat session, we have a bunch of people, 13 people locked onto the chat session of a whole bunch of questions already typed up in there in one hand uh, showing up there. So the alternative way uh, besides showing your hand on on the keypad uh, where I have two people now, uh, you could also, if you're on the chat session, raise your hand uh, Let's assume that even if you have typed up the question, if you did not show your hand, the, it would be difficult for the chairs to recognize you. So uh, please make sure you show your hand uh, if you do have a question. All right. So I'll pass this on to uh, on on to uh, Fabian, who's running the session uh, at present. I mean. We can see that it's Ravi, Leo, and Michelle 
uh, on the chat session with their hands up, and then on the uh, phone session, we have got two hands up, one from a 610 area code and the other from a 703 area code. Uh, they might overlap with uh, the others uh, the, the, that we were showing just now. So, uh, Fabian, uh, go ahead and rec uh, call up uh, in whatever order you, you would like to. Um, well, I'm I think probably the best way to to work this is uh, to to start with um, with Bill and uh, with Bill a question to Bill uh, talk and then go go th uh, through the other talks I guess. I so I think it would be easier if you do it from person asking questions than from speakers because lining up the 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 people okay. actually is a challenge. Okay, good. Well then just. Then we should probably start with Ravi, who was first, at least, on the queue here. Um, <coughs> uh, okay. Ravi here. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Okay. My first question is, um, oh, boy, I see that now there are other people who have asked questions. Uh, for Bill Berg. Uh, how is the usage of burn work by research and operational practitioners progressing because they have to understand common or cross-discipline concepts and vocabularies? So, um, I, can, I can get to that, that question. Uh, thanks for the question, Ravi. Um, it, it's progressing gradually. Uh, what we've needed to do is to address the issue in stages. So the first stage was really to be able to come up with a semantic framework where we could break down uh, the, the description of data uh, to no further level of granularity than required, but uh, at least be able to get to some of the basic concepts that underlie, uh, for instance, those, those cognitive assessments that you saw or the description of um, specific types of mouse strains and what genes are knocked out, say, if they're a knockout mouse strain, those sorts of details that the name alone, like the name of an assessment or the name of a knockout mouse, can't give you. Um, mostly what we've done is bring online a uh, federated uh, query mediator architecture that's set up to um, first have remote data sources register their schema, so the structure gets advertised and and um, and uh, mapped into the ontology at a sort of high level of semantic type. And then uh, with the tools they've built so far, they can then go in and run things like uh, select unique queries on each of the exposed columns in the schemas that they're sharing, parts of the schema that they're sharing, and those uh, individual couples in those columns actually get mapped into the ontology. And that's what makes it possible for the mediator architecture to take a query that's composed in the context of the shared ontology and then post it to any one of these uh, uh, contributing source uh, data sets in their own terms, using the terms that they have, which have been since mapped into the ontology. And we've been working slowly on developing automated tools that can help uh, make it practical to do the mapping of, of some of these larger databases. Um, 
you know, I, I should say, too, that, um, you know, for, from our point of view, um, OOR is extremely important because we want to make sure that the ontologies, either the ontologies we use or the ontologies that we have to create or, or mix together through some sort of mashup process um, are the same as those being used by others in the field. So Ken talked, for instance, about the um, the organism taxonomy ta- uh, ontology that they're working on in the context of uh, de- disease-borne pathogens, um, uh, uh, pathogens bearing, uh, bearing disease, however you would phrase it. Uh, you know, that was one of the things we came up against, especially when we had to broaden our scope to the no uh, science informatics framework where then we had to cover all species that are commonly used as model organisms by neuroscientists. We, of course, wanted to go to either NCBI taxonomy or the Global Biodiversity Info Facility and use what they had, but they didn't have anything that we could use in the context of OWL and certainly not OWL-DL. So we ended up writing code that would convert some of those, selectively convert portions of those things to an OWL-DL compatible form. So it's been a lot of cobbling together of pieces on the ontology side, and then developing infrastructure components that can help as much as possible automate the process of tagging the data. I hope that answers the question. Well, yeah, it does, and it's a common question to Ken as well, because either we map the namespaces among different ontologies, or we do uh, converge on the namespace or concept. Well, that's an important point, actually. So what I should say is when we came about to solve this issue for organism taxonomy, we, we realized that there are other people out there working on it. So for what we built in OWL, we needed to have something that was OWL-DL, so we created a taxonomy and some of the relationships required. But then we're full of annotation properties that link us to NCBI taxonomy, link us to the at least what we believe is the semantic equivalent for GBIF. In fact, we even use GBIF as the final vetting source since NCBI taxonomy you know, explicitly advertise itself as not being the canonical view of organism taxonomy. So that connection to specific namespaces, I think, is critical, Robbie. You're absolutely right. And then having it accessible to programs. Thank you so much. Two very quick ones uh, do I use, or I wait my turn again sometime? Robbie, I see a lot of hands up. Robbie, this is Chan. Do you want me to... uh... Yes, maybe you can. Maybe Ken can answer, and I know that you have another question for Evan. I think so. Maybe we can wait for with that. And see whether other people have other yes, questions. Yes. So. So you want? Yeah, Ken. Go ahead. Okay. So. Yeah, the, the issue of mapping among these ontologies is quite complex. Uh, one problem that we have is that these these taxonomies have evolved over time. I mean, they've been around for centuries. And so the uh, the literature, when, when you refer to a species in the literature, you know, they, they had a, the context in which they refer to it is actually quite different from the context now. I mean, they, they were using a different taxonomy. So the, it, it's, it's actually quite complex to map the ontologies not only to each other, but also to themselves over time because of all the versions that have existed. Yeah. I yeah, yeah. So this this is an issue that is very important in this ontology, and it would be nice to have this kind of versioning capability uh, in an OOR, where you could explicitly refer to earlier versions at earlier times. Um, 
So does that help a little bit? Yes, very much so. Thank you. Uh, yes, I think it's this collaboration is very extreme. There was also one presentation by earlier speaker, maybe Peter can recall, uh, who had uh, uh, shown uh, distributed um, triple searches among multiple ontologies. That, I thought, was a step in this kind of direction. If you were looking for common things happening among multiple distributed ontologies, and if you could do uh, triple search across them, that was one example that I thought that might be relevant to both of your works. Yes. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. I will wait. I think I have taken more than enough of my time. I'll wait in the end if we have more time. Okay. Thank you, Ravi. Michelle, I think you're next on the list. Michelle? Star 3, Michelle. Maybe I think you. I actually lost my position. This is Leo. Okay, Leo. <laughs> I don't know why, but... Well, as long as Michelle is not there, just <laughs> jump in. And uh, Well, this is just to Bill uh, Bug, and, and partially, uh, and, 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 you know, he's, he's talked about this. But um, one of the issues I always uh, hear from uh, the biomedicine folk is that it's changing so quickly that... Um, there's a problem in integrating, you know, the working hypotheses with uh, the emerging theories, which we might call the ontologies. And uh, therefore, it's so, uh, it seems like it can't keep up. So the, everything is changing so quickly, uh, which, which I actually think is, you know, a scientific problem or, you know, just part of science. Uh, but it means that uh, you can't constitute or, or, or uh, construct a theory without it changing, you know, uh, within the next couple of days. And how, so the question is, how do you uh, keep up with something like that? And this is to Bill. Well, I think that's a, a very important question. It sort of lies at the foundation of all of what we're hoping to do, at least in biomedicine, with the use of more formal uh, semantic specifications. I mean, the way we're dealing with it in, in the various projects I'm working on is, as I mentioned, it's a sort of layer what we attempt to do, starting with the simplest, most general uh, aspects of what we're trying to describe um, and working our way up. We're, we're not very far beyond the most basic, simple, generalizable uh, aspects of theory, if you will. So, for instance, simple problems are still <laughs> simple problems like the following are still so prolific we, that we can actually be productive in taking that approach. So, for instance, if we want to provide a means across, say, six different data repositories that describe neuronal cell types or nerve cell types, which includes, includes neurons and glia, um, people across the field have different ways they like to classify them. And traditionally, that's been done with terminologies that have, you know, multiple inheritance hierarchies, and you end up with something that you really can't easily compute on. So just by going to OWL 
and coming up with a single criteria and a fairly flat asserted hierarchy and then using object properties to define things like the neurotransmitters they release and their morphological types and their location in the brain, we're then able to come up with the standard and general and agreed upon organizations and different classifications, if you will, of nerve cell types. That alone it gets us, I won't say it's an 80-20 problem, but at least 60% of some of the big obstacles to data federation uh, get, get taken care of if you're able to put something like that in place. So it's not really a direct answer to your question, uh, Leo, because I, I think this issue of dealing with hypotheses that that harden and mature into theory and how they evolve over time um, is not something that we're, we're dealing with directly because I, I think it's still a research problem. Thanks. Okay. Um, Michelle, are you there? If not, uh, John. John is the next line. John McCarthy. Uh, Michelle just sent a message saying she was, her microphone worked, so I'll defer to her if she's on. You have to hit star three to unmute yourself. Shall I go ahead then? I'm on, uh, yeah, uh, just go ahead. She just said she's on Skype. She says she's on Skype, yeah. In the meantime, let me pose a question to those of you who are, uh, uh who have been in this OOR, uh, project for a while, and that is, uh, the level of granularity that, that, uh, you expect to to use to characterize ontology. So it seems to me it's it's important to distinguish between metadata that characterizes an ontology as a whole and metadata that characterizes the individual entry, the terms or the concepts. <coughs> and of those and as had, has been mentioned here, a need for uh, uh, versioning so that you can manage things over time. The, the, uh, I think one of the original uh, motivations for the, the metadata registry 111.79 standard was to provide more formalisms that, that uh, characterized how individual uh, data elements, not just the whole schema, uh, changed over time and, and their kind of different levels of standardization. So uh, could anybody on the call kind of speak to those issues of uh, what's expected for the OOR in terms of granularity? Um, Leo, uh, I, I won't speak for it, but uh, I do know that the uh, Ontology for Ontologies um, uh, working group is addressing both uh, what you might call the uh, characterization at a lower level, um, in other words, 
you know, how, how do you describe what these ontologies are about and uh, sub-modules of them? But, but then also at a meta level, how do you describe, uh, you know, mappings between them? So in, in one sense, then, uh, uh, your, your characterization that you need really metadata at multiple levels, uh, at, at probably the assertion level, but also uh, perhaps at some sort of sub-theory or module level, and then uh, with respect to a given ontology, in order to be able to uh, map it or compare it with some other ontology, I think they want. I think they want to, um, you know, address that issue. But again, it's not very well established. <laughs> Fair enough, John. I'd like to, this is Peter Benson. I'd like to add one little caution for all of us that versioning in metadata is. Uh, an enormous challenge uh, you, in terms of support of legacy data and need to, in, in the cases we had experience with, and our difference with 11179 is in the OTD, it's a permanent, it, it's, a, it's a permanent archive. In other words, it is what it is when you used it. There may be pointers to superseded by or deprecated or those sort of issues, but you know, it's not... I'm using the current version. You get into issues of legacy data and being able to read legacy data with changing metadata is a real challenge. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, I, am I back in the queue? Yes, you are. All right. Thank you. I, this is Michelle Raymond. I um, was experimenting with Skype, and obviously uh, it didn't work quite as I wanted this was for first Evan and then the other panelists. I'm basing this off of an example, but the underlying question is, what are your requirements for and your recommendations for the ontology repository architecture when we want to add in support material, either for an ontology or ontologies that are, are stored there, or how uh, support material on how those ontologies interrelate. And let me give you the, an example for standards and schema that I've, I'm encountering currently. I'm working with the BPMN, uh, the business process, model notation, the XPDL, extensible pro, uh, process, or proceed, yeah, process, description language, Bipple uh, business process uh, execution language, and then you know forward into the BPM, the the um, model, the, the metadata definition part. And the issue is aren't that those standards aren't working together; that it's not that the viability of usage is fine. I've been able to show that I've got schemas; I can extend them. The instances that all ties together. The issues and issues for adoption is the lack of explanatory documentation. We don't have cookbooks of good usage and examples in libraries, all the things that aid in the adoption of those standards. And that's something that as our ontologies get more and more upper ontology of the upper ontology of the upper ontology, we leave so many people behind. Um, how do we tie the 101 documents back in. How do you see that happening in the architecture? So this is 
is Evan. This is really not um, an issue that I've thought much about. Um, so many of the other issues that were more um, in my requirements set are so hard that I haven't even um, considered this kind of thing. Um, well, so I guess in, in an ontology context, since we're talking about sort of these, these models are what, what we would call M1 models rather than M2 models, Right. Uh, and what you, the, your examples are M2 models. Um, it would be more descriptions of, of what we're modeling and how you might use that to specialize things or what kind of um, reasoning uh, these things would support. Th those are, I think, especially the latter one, are important things to capture somewhere. Uh, I, frankly, I haven't really thought too much about that. Um, but, yes. This is this is good. This should be linked in, um, probably by reference. Um, so yeah, this is an interesting point. And when we're linking in by reference, we may be losing some of the metadata about those support documents themselves that actually add into the. I'm wondering if perhaps we need to put a ontology over that set of, of documents and ontologies. So you're saying we should have something which sort of characterizes this kind of material that, that would be, I would think of as annotations? Yes, yes, and make it, uh, tag it in such a way that it's accessible to the user set who are coming in to get their, get right in and get the understanding of the ontology or worse, the uh, policymakers and the managers who are approving whether or not, you know, their products should use these standards and ontologies, um, and or if they should go off with their own vocabulary. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree. This is this would be an important aspect. And one thing that I had considered was the ability to put comments in. Um, part sort of like the uh, Mark Musen system where uh, you have sort of a Web 2.0 mechanism for allowing people to make comments about things, um, mm -hmm. that could be generalized to include this kind of information. Okay. Thanks, Evan. And anyone else? Um, it's a general question. just happened to be in Evan's domain. I cover an aspect of that in my question coming up. Okay, well then let's just uh, move on. I think we will come back to this question because Anne just posed a question which is complementary to that, to Michelle's question. But um, I would like to proceed just in the order. Can, uh, can I address it a little bit? Yes, okay. Yes, can. Yes, can. Okay, in the... Um, in these communities, these are very diverse communities. You have a, you have individuals who have very high standards for the information and uh, classifications, and then you have individuals who are at the other extreme and, and everything in between. You have amateurs as well as professionals. What you really need is some way of determining what, uh, you know, where this information came from and what, uh, you know. Uh, what standards for quality and uh, and curation were were applied when the uh, 
when the information was developed, when the information was, was uh, created. Um, I, I'm not sure it's a good idea to be, you know, creating a single global standard for everybody, um, because then, you know, you, you'll be excluding a large segment of the population. And, and uh, this information, while it may be somewhat weak, um, uh, might be might still be useful. You know, provided you take into account that you know, uh, you know, there, there may be problems with it. Does that help at all? Yeah. So essentially, are you saying that the additional uh, support materials re that relate to the they're associated with the ontology should receive some quality tagging of their own? Yeah. Uh, some kind of levels of quality or standards that were applied, and it could be at the ontology level or even at individual, uh, you know, concept levels. You know, Thank I, you. It, that, that all seems to be very useful. Michelle, this is Peter Benson. We seem to be, we've learned a little bit to be very careful of quality assessments and how they're being done. And uh, some of the threads on some of the discussions in terms of, you know, let the market decide. We actually feel very strongly that measurements in terms of who is using this and how, you know, let them rank the success of its application are much more valuable than some third-party assessment of quality that's not based on actual use. And that's one of the things we, you know, in terms of allowing these things to develop over time and let the most successful one sort of, you know, float to the top and conversely the other one sink to the bottom seems to be in the speed in which the market is looking for solutions, um, more practical way to go as a, and I'm not talking about not documenting it, not having, you know, your cookbook that explains how to use it, but clear distinction. This is actually in use by these people for this period of time and they're prepared to recommend it is much more valuable than an assessment of its quality that's not applied to practical use. Yes, I see the distinction. Thank you. Okay. Um, Peter, I think uh, John had uh, John asked his question. Fabian, you have to speak up. Peter, I'm sorry. Uh, my yes. microphone seems to be really... Bad. Um, I think you're next in line. I believe John had uh, John asked his question. Um, this uh, I trying to go through the queue on the um, on the chat. Um, since I can't see the people who um, try to announce themselves on the on the phone line, uh, maybe you could you take track of uh, and take care of that. Okay, I'll tell you this. Only one hand on there. Uh, who is from an area code eight eight six two? Maybe maybe we can take that person, and and after that, then everyone is on your on your chat board. Then okay, person from eight eight six two. You you are the one person who has pressed a one one, so you should know who you are. Eight six two person. Well, why, why are we waiting for the eight six two person? Peter, you had a question. Just yes, I, I. 
I had two questions, uh, but but they all fold back to the same thing. Uh, they, they were just uh, illustrative. Essentially, our focus today actually is on uh, rationale, expectations, and requirements for the OOR. Uh, I, I, I really appreciate all the great presentations uh, that the speakers have given us. One thing that that I think uh, the, the, even the questions and answers so far uh, have come to asking maybe about tertiary services. Uh, I mean, how can we map across different domains and so on? And even my questions, I mean, on how XMDR would have helped uh, with all the different uh, registered uh, uh, taxonomies or artifacts or asking can and maybe uh, Sundown, uh, 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 Buck and maybe Susie Lewis. I mean, since they are all working on the same field, how an OOR could sort of help them normalize the question, uh, their, their, their work so that uh, we can reduce duplication. But going back one step, I actually would have thought that maybe just going through the three uh, names, uh, the, the three words, I mean, open, ontology, repository, I mean, the, the very basics. I mean, I, I think Peter Benson had, had pointed out, I mean, the, the, the very basics for us. I mean, uh, the importance of open, I mean, the importance of uh, putting things into an ontology, the importance of... Uh, Having a persistent store, I mean, the, the repository, I mean, the, the three very basic, I mean, in, rather than tertiary services, these three basics, I mean, could have provided a lot of utility and value. Uh, maybe uh, before we look into even the tertiary uh, values, I mean, some of the very basics need to be addressed too. So... That's sort of the general comment. Okay. Doug, could I make a sort of ancillary comment? Sure. Uh, so one of the things I would add to those three, and I think you're absolutely right, focusing on the immediate value that something that provides for those three things um, would give us is, is really what I would hope would come out of this summit. Uh, but the one thing I would add, and, and it, it can sort of, derived from the fact that you have a persistent store is traceability. And other people have talked about this. So we might want to rename it, this is really meant facetiously, to Toro, Traceable Open Repository of Ontologies. Uh, because without that traceability, without being able to get to back to the source, you can't find out, out uh, whether you're dealing with something that was assembled by, I think it was Ken who mentioned, professionals versus amateurs. Um, and, and that's really critical if you're going to, understand what the real reusability is of the resource. And um, also traceability, to some extent, implies that you, 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 you know, are advertising yourself for participation in the overall process of creating something that's reusable, which, as you said, with people like myself and Susie Lewis, frequently requires a lot of collaboration. As Leo can tell you, there's a great deal of that in the biomedical community that's focusing on ontologies. Quite a few meetings where people try to get together and create something that meets everyone's requirements. Yeah, 
Absolutely, I, I can't agree more. But you, you're probably two weeks ahead of us, so I mean, uh, this should and would probably be dealt with uh, by uh, Barry and Michael two weeks from now in the ontology of ontologies uh, discussion. So check back. It's definitely important. I'm sure. Okay. Um, this uh, person from the. Um, Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just had problems getting it off mute. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So you are I'm, the eight six two person. Could you introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, I did before, but I was on mute. <laughs> uh, my name is Tom Bruner. I'm from the Vars Pharmaceuticals. Uh, we're uh, heavily involved with metadata management. And I have my question is based on uh, the ISO 1179XMDR uh, um, presentation. Uh, one, are you working with the UDEF group because they're defining data co element concepts? Uh, I believe that we've had some contact with the uh, UDEX uh, group. Uh, if Kevin's on the line, he might be able to uh, confirm that or, or not. Okay, well, I know they're building up a, a, a very large multilingual taxonomy. Uh, sorry, could you repeat what group that was? Uh, it's the open group. Uh, it's okay. a uh, open forum group. They have what they call a universal data element definition framework that they actually applied to helping out Hurricane Katrina logistics and other areas to exchange. It's a basically a universal identifier that they're using so that you can exchange data between systems by using this universal identifier. And that's linked to a series of object and property uh, terminologies. And it's all a hierarchical uh, taxonomy. Uh, could you send us some email about that? I'm not, I'm not sure that we have. Okay. Um, which, uh, who should I send it to? Uh, send it to John McCarthy, and I'll, I'll send it on the, the group. All right. And the other last question I have is, uh, I know um, uh, of the XMDR, but do you know any vendors who are selling open source ISO 1179 repositories, registration repository registries? Well, there are some people who claim to do it, but it's it's more, it's not, it's, it isn't exactly off-the-shelf stuff. Uh, I, I believe that uh, if you contacted uh, Larry Fitzwater at the Environmental Protection Agency, okay. they've uh, actually had a number of people uh, uh, who, have, who, are, who are selling products which claim to be uh, addition to 111.79. Okay. And the last question, has anybody connected any of these ontologies directly to the uh, metadata registry so that 
I can actually find exactly where the column name and format uh, that goes with a piece of data. That's wh where I'm coming from. Well, that's 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 precisely what we're uh, trying to do, and that uh, the. the uh, we're we're just embarking on a uh, on a collaboration with the uh, science uh, data group at Microsoft Research to do it for some uh, uh, hydrological data for, for uh, information about water. Hey, so is there a way we could stay tuned? By the, the, that goes that's currently uh, outside the scope of 111.29, but it's but it's something that we are undertaking as part of the XNGR project. Yeah, is there a way I could work please. with you to try, try to get some biological, um, physical data? Maybe. <laughs> could you take that offline? Yeah. I mean, this, All right, this so who, uh, I should just send it to John? Yeah. All right, and then you can connect me with all the other people. I, I'll, I'll be glad to do it. All right, thank if, you. If, if nobody else uh, wants to answer that, maybe I can make a comment on UDEF. Because uh, between the ontolog uh, folks and UDEF, I mean, ontolog actually had uh, written up a piece that was uh, sent over to DHS uh, a little earlier. I mean, probably not earlier, but two or three years ago, uh, uh, sort of making a comment on UDEF. Uh, essentially, the, the, the approach UDEF is doing is probably not what the formal ontologist would call a conceptual model or a uh, or an ontology, but, but much more like an index system or some standard standardization of uh, of uh, indexing, like I mean, your part numbering system or your uh, Dewey Decimal System, which is not a conceptual model. Uh, anyone could sort of uh, come up and say, okay, I, I hereby define, uh, one, two, three, four, five is a screw, uh, uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine is a hammer. Uh, how, I mean, but you would need everyone to accept that before it, it's, it's useful. But what the ontologist, uh, community is doing is, is try to build the meta models so that, uh, one could actually infer, and, and therefore, it's slight. This that approach is slightly different. Well, Peter, this is Frank. Can I speak to this? Oh, please. So, UDEF claims to be an instantiation of the naming convention from 111.79, but it's not the full 111.79. It looks like that they're. As you say, they're constructing some sort of taxonomy, and then they're using a path through the taxonomy as an identifier for a concept. Um, so, whereas the the model being pursued in 111.79 is that we just use um, some sort of uh, meaningless concept identifier, which is usually expected to be fixed length. Um, so, it yes, I think your your assessment is correct. It's closer to what the um, uh, ECMA people are doing than it is to what um, is currently happening in edition 3 of 111.79. It is, however, the case that 111.79 is attempting to link up 
ontologies and metadata registries, and there's provision, I believe, Kevin can confirm this, in Edition 3, that symbols used in ontolo formal ontologies, um, that there's a way of, of recording um, those symbols and their mappings onto concepts in the more traditional metadata registry side of 111.79. Yeah, Peter, right. can, I, can I also um, add to that? Sure. This is Peter Benson. Sure, Peter. Yeah. Go ahead. The, the one thing to be careful of is in today's world, I'm sure we're all, all aware, there's a new taxonomy, ontology, classification almost every single day. What we've tried to do in the in the EOTD with ECMA is that we don't invent anything. Our job is to try to bring it together into place we can map across different systems. So from my understanding of UDEF, it is definitely a, an attempt at developing, you know, a standardized taxonomy. And there are, there are literally hundreds uh, of similar um, attempts. The key <laughs> issue that we're also very concerned about is we approach these different taxonomies and and ask permission to to bring them into the OTD. Most say yes. Some say no, and that's a statement that their system is proprietary, and particularly that their metadata is proprietary. And those are the things we're trying to make sure people are aware of, that combining proprietary metadata with their data is a very dangerous thing to do, but it's not always labeled as such. So if it's not proprietary, you could expect to find it in the EOTD. If it's not in the EOTD, it's most likely proprietary. So I don't know if that helps at all. Thank you. Well, I'd be interested in working with anybody that allows us to bring the ontology uh, model and the ISO model together where we can actually use it to find data from different perspectives. I mean, that's what we're trying to, you know, at least from the healthcare perspective. So, Tom, uh, one thing do, I would invite you to do is to join the community. Uh, I notice you are, have not registered as a member of the community yet, so. Oh, I, I, I must, okay, I didn't know I had to register because I've been on, on probably about 80 Yes, sir, you've been on the calls, but if you go to the, the wiki homepage, there's a, a button called membership and look look under the membership section all the details are, are there all right great all right so i'll send uh john mccarthy uh the udef information just for your information and then we can connect about working together on doing some kind of pilot or something okay um thank you i i think we we only have uh four minutes left of the official time um Peter, how strictly want to, do you want to enforce the time limit here? Uh, it's up to you. I mean, the, the, the phone system will not kick us out. Okay. Well, um, then let's just uh, continue with the uh, questions on, which are queued up. And, yeah, uh, the next I, I one is just Greg. I would suggest that people that yeah, have to uh, leave, thank you. I no leave. But others continue if you can. Well, Maybe because, uh, actually, Leo, you, uh, you asked an important question, which we put, probably should uh, address before everybody leaves, in particular since it uh, is uh, to all the panelists, and I don't know whether they have time to stay on. Uh, you asked, or maybe you can ask your question directly. 
Yes, uh, I don't want to interrupt anyone, uh, but my question to everyone was, what is the most important service that a uh, ontology, open ontology repository could provide to you, especially as a, a content provider? And then what's the next one? What's the next most important? Some, some have answered. Um, that's actually part of the question I was going to ask, Leo, and that is uh, I'd like to see a requirement for the OOR to be uh, – Adopting, at least in principle, uh, an ontology of ontologies so that we have a standard set of categories so people can find what they're looking for and they can actually go get a dictionary or an ontology, look up the term and see if that's what they're looking for and be able to then use it to search for other information. I think now you're really uh, two weeks ahead uh, because this is uh, exactly the topic that will be addressed uh, by another panel in two weeks. And, and uh, who was that? Was that Rex? Yeah, that was Rex. Uh, that that was my most important, uh, you know, uh, requirement. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and so, I, I think everybody agrees that that is a real important requirement, and that's why we have uh, the 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 panel and also the discussion thread uh, on the email list uh, for the preparation of the summit. I think somebody else was about to speak. Right, right. We definitely want to hear from Jerry Reddick, uh, who's new with us, and Ann Wrightson, who's actually uh, one of our advisors on the Ontology Summit Advisory Committee. So so let's make sure we don't uh, lose these two people. Uh, no, I, I, I just thought that we give... Um, um, Maybe we have one or two other comments on, on Leo's questions, because I, I think that's very important. Online, we had a couple of uh, re responses, so um, perhaps others have additional responses. Yeah, so this is Evan. So I, I, I can't – I wouldn't answer your question – exactly as you posted. <laughs> I'm not sure what the most important service is, but the, sort of the key characteristics for us, I think, are persistence and maintenance. And by persistence, I don't mean just that the content remains there, but that the identifiers you use for it remain active. And then availability. So, you know, for for the using the semantic web tools, you really bind kind of at use time. And so, you know, you can't have these things not being available for large portions of time. So those are the key things for us. Although discovery, I think, may be important depending on how people end up using our tools. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Evan. And I know other folks had some responses. This is only the first of two sessions. I mean, we are going to continue this conversation the, the, the next Thursday. So, so folks, please come back. Okay. Well, I think next in line is uh, Rex. No, I just did mine. Okay. Oh, that was then uh, Jerry. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a question for Evan. Um, 
I guess there's some concern with the OM, if the OMG were managing the repository, how can we ensure that it's totally open, that anybody can, even non-members of the OMG can submit um, ontologies and have their ontologies treated in an equal manner? So, as far as submission is concerned, I don't think it will be totally open. Uh, as far as use is concerned, it will be. So, so you're not proposing an open ontology registry then to be managed by the OMG? Not open in the way that the people here have described it, no. But similarly, I think that most standards organizations don't fill all of the criteria uh, that that people are imposing. They're pretty stringent, frankly. Well, the criteria is still under the discussion. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree. But, I mean, there is no fixed agreement on what open means uh, among the people who are in this community. Right. But, but given our history as being a sort of open uh, advocates, uh, advocates uh, there definitely will be distinctions between what uh, as Evan said, what this group would consider as open versus what OMG would consider as open. But one one thing, I'm repeating him here. I I, I suggest, uh, I I guess that we could still pursue uh, collaboration uh, opportunities of federation and so on. That that could be useful to all groups concerned. Thank you. Okay, Em. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Excellent. Um, I just reposted my post to the chat board. Um, I wanted to link this discussion back to what's been happening on the quality thread on the list. And um, just to put a little meat on the bones of this question, um, I'm a little concerned that um, some of the discussion on quality seems to be more sort of religious and campaigning than actually geared to utility questions in the real world. And um, I think we should be able to let people know about ontologies that perhaps aren't as squeaky clean as some of us would like to be, whereas only being able to host ontologies, which actually meet perhaps more of criteria. And having said that and posted my question, what do panelists and others think? May I suggest that either maybe Leo or, or Michael steps up to answer this by drawing upon what we discussed uh, over the course of the entire Ontology Summit 2007 last year. Well, can I answer it first? This is Evan. Okay. No? Okay, I'll wait. No, no, no. It's not too far. Go ahead. Um, so I, I just wanted to say that from an OMG perspective, um, we have more pragmatic concerns than um, what some of the upper ontologist folk would have. Uh, so we definitely have different views on um, what our gatekeeping rules will be. Um, this is Peter Benson. I think our, our view is, is very much driven by the market that you do not exclude an ontology, but you track uses of ontologies. And that allows you to, to provide the public with some um, ranking capability. We, we feel that anything that stops ontologies coming to the 
or being included based on price, for example, which is, I think, a UMG model. It's actually very expensive for, for a company to submit uh, an ontology. Um, I, I think that that in itself, if it's vendor-driven, that may make some sense, but I'm not sure that's going to be customer-driven. And that's the difference is the customers are the ones from our, our model. It's really the customers that drive it, and it's through their use that they signify the value of the ontology. But there's no barrier to entry into the system, which is, I believe, is more closely uh, linked to the or knowledge with the open model. Uh, this is Leo. Yeah, I, actually, Evan, I, I, I kind of agree with you, um, uh, but I disagree with your characterization of upper ontology. So, um, I think uh, I think in a sense, every uh, artifact uh, in this potential resource has behind it a set of requirements and, if you will, some sort of objective function. What what it, that thing is supposed to satisfy. And uh, in many cases, it could be lower down in the hierarchy, right? So uh, if you have a taxonomy, right, that characterizes uh, the topic uh, categories that you, in your organization or your domain, uh, uh, seem to need for uh, bending your documents, well, that's fine. It, it, it's, not a, it's not an extremely precise thing. Uh, that requires, you know, heavy-duty ontology that specifies properties and relations and so forth, but it satisfies your requirements. And what we don't want to do is exclude those kinds of things. Correct. Uh, but what we also want to do is uh, characterize those in some way uh, so that we can weed out things that are worse or better uh, according to criteria at that level. Um, uh, we can, we've all seen arbitrary uh, uh, taxonomies that are just a mess. And for whatever their purpose, they're, they're a mess. And we want to exclude those even if, uh, you know, the user requirements say, well, we want a mess. Um, so, so we have to characterize both in terms of the, uh, the expressiveness of the semantic model, but also in the use of that model and how it conforms to the expressiveness. So that's part of, to me, uh, the gatekeeping uh, requirement. It's not just high-end ontologies, but it's useful uh, lower semantic technologies and resources. Um, this is Fabian, and I, uh, I'm one of the people who are uh, leading this effort or this thread on the discussion of um, evaluation and requirements. And from my perspective, um, I think when it comes to gatekeeping, which I now understand as the minimal requirements every ontology has to meet, we should be have very low standards. But uh, at the same time, the discussion had uh, made very clear that there are different perspectives on ontologies and different ways of uh, evaluating and market-driven evaluation is certainly one important, uh, but it might be not the uh, the only one, and, or certainly it's not the only one. And I think a uh, require, uh, requirement for the repository would be to allow for different ways of evaluation so that people can basically have an experiment what kind of evaluation, evaluation is the most, uh, the best one for ontologies. Because 
to be honest, I think nobody knows yet. We don't have much experience with evaluation over long term. And it might be the case that different kinds of ontologies need different ways of evaluating them. So um, I, I think uh, we, we will have to come up with a list of different ways how people want to evaluate ontologies, and the repository should support these different ways. This is Anne Wrightson. Can I come in with a perspective here again? Um, one of the things that I really value as an analyst sometimes is to be able to access um, work that's already been done but may not be that good, but nevertheless gives me a leg up because um, it's 40% of the way there, and that's really useful because then I can go the other 20 or 30% that gets me good enough for what I need to do. So, um, and having listened, that's what my view is. I would like a uh, an OOR to have to to have level of a registry level, which would allow me to know about as many things as possible, and then beyond that to have other defined criteria so that I could know about things that had had passed some um, various other technical goodness criteria. Exactly. I think that's. This is Dilbog. Yeah, I would just completely agree with that. Um, excluding absolute junk would certainly be helpful, but ultimately having the right metadata, which I guess will be discussed later, later, so that people can maybe even semi-automatically make some judgment as to what fits their application criteria would be extremely useful. Okay. Uh, Anne, do you have another question, or do, shall we proceed? And I'm happy with the way this topic has been handled. Okay. Uh, the next one, uh, the next pr person on the list doesn't have, doesn't give his name, so I don't know who to ask. Uh, but the one person on the on the chat which didn't didn't give his name. The anonymous one person. Yeah, the anonymous may not know they're anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, Mala didn't. Uh, Ravi is on uh, next in line, but Mala didn't ask a question, so uh, probably we should ask have uh, Mala first and afterwards Ravi. Okay, Mala. Please press star three. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, um, I just had a very quick comment on the quality uh, evaluation that uh, thread that we were talking about, and um, I firmly believe that. Uh, Certain domains can be uh, uh, modeled more easily uh, uh, through ontologies, and others will have, uh, you know, more tricky things to model. So um, just dismissing an ontology that it is junk or something, I mean, it needs to consider how difficult the uh, domain was for, for modeling. So um, one is the knowledge representation aspects, and then the other is the domain itself you know, that is being modeled. Both both should enter the criteria for the quality evaluation. 
Uh, Mala, this is Leo. I agree. It's the complexity of the domain, and uh, the quality is a function of that, and it's also a function of the, the requirements uh, for modeling that in that domain. So it's kind of three-pronged. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, and this is Bill Dog. I would agree with that, that the, the bottom line is if there is utility to it, then it's not junk. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just wanted to, uh, you know, keep these two things separate, that the knowledge representation aspect is orthogonal to the domain, the difficulty to model it. So, uh, you know, like if you are in a... Uh, uh, more uh, non-deterministic type of uh, situations, then it's it's harder. That that's all. Yeah. So so uh, you know, uh, this is Leo. I'd like to you know uh, see uh, the gateway folks, uh, the evalu evaluation folks, actually take into consideration each of these things, right? So uh, domain uh, complexity. Uh, language, you know, the representation language, um, but also the uh, intent uh, or requirements to model for some application for which this uh, model is being developed. For example, um, you can you can make do with very loosely characterized categories uh, depending upon your requirements. But if you need uh, extremely precise, uh, you know, transactions or descriptions of transactions, that puts you in a different kind of level. So we need to define criteria for multiple defined levels. Yeah, I agree. I believe this is also connects to the ontology of ontology uh, um, question because um, this this levels would be part of the metadata data I guess Leo and then uh, allow the people to, people to to quickly see what the purpose of a given ontology is and um, well how fine grained it is and all all these important questions which are the basis to even start the evaluation. Um, yeah, eventually, I, I mean, I would like to see some sort of parameterized uh, criteria, right? So, uh, you know, in the future where uh, you have an OOR requirement, you could say, okay, I have this and this and this requirement in this kind of domain, uh, you know, point me to the best thing. Yeah. Yes. So that's querying, not gatekeeping. Right. Exactly. So that's for discovery. Yeah. And it's I, well, it's it's related not to gatekeeping because gatekeeping is uh, keeping stuff out. It is comp uh, related to querying and to evaluation because if people evaluate uh, ontology, they need to know what purpose it was built for. If it if the meta metadata says already, okay, this is uh, just a taxonomy, um, then it would be obviously unfair to uh, expect something which has more uh, is enriched by relations about you know parthood or some other relations. 
So the the uh, the metadata is important for evaluation, but not for gatekeeping. This is Peter Benson. I actually, you know, Elio's put it in terms of parameterizing the ontology to be able to quickly determine whether an ontology is suitable or not would be very important. And you know, the, the more those parameters would be published in a way that those who, who have ontologies would be able to self-describe themselves would be actually very useful indeed. So you know, it comes down to making very public how you are evaluating ontologies and how you're, you're uh, allowing them to be described. And that would be, from the OR perspective, one of the most useful uh, things that they could do. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, what Leo would concern to be a junk ontology, some other poor schmucks like us may consider that's quite useful. Well, there are some limits. I mean, the, 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 the <laughs> language... The language m- must be specified. There must be, you know, it should be at least syntactically correct and all that. So, I, I mean, I, not everything goes. You know, it's a, it's a very tricky thing because you may be modeling a very complex domain in a very simple language or vice versa. And, yeah, you know. but whatever language you use, you need to use it correctly. That's the point. And it needs to be specified. And so, I, I mean, there must be some... If I if I just send in a text file, that's not an ontology. You know, it might be useful to have uh, you know one one of the categories of metadata be something along the lines of capabilities. Uh, can it be used in a, in a specific kind of quantifiable application? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know, eventually, I think uh, if we had some sort of uh, vector uh, that we could characterize, you know, could be it's not just distance and speed, but other dimensions. And if we could point to things, even even if they're bad, but they have utility um, uh, to some group uh, according to some criteria, that would be very useful. Um, Leo, uh, you know the DARPA RKF project and how we were trying to quali- you know, do these kind of quality metrics on, on ontologies. And it's, it's very hard. No, no I, I understand that, yep. <laughs> and I think that there is a body of literature on that, uh, from that project. So. Uh, yeah, it would probably be useful to post that, uh, Mala. I, I I don't know who is doing the um, uh, who is babysitting that RKF uh, website. I, I I've lost touch, but I'll, I'll I can check into it. Yeah, and 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 uh, uh, submit it to you know the OOR or the Ontology Summit uh, distribution list here. Okay, I'll do that. Thank, Thank you. you. That's great. Okay, Ravi. Uh, yeah, may, may I suggest we quickly wrap up? We are 21 uh, yeah, uh, minutes exceeded time, and we have actually another two and a half hours to spend on the same topic next week. So I can ask it then, but my comment was just a very quick one on uh, those who are trying to uh, sort out the levels of professional 
as proficiency in multiple level people visiting ontologies one item is case based reasoning tools that can help you filter so that's it uh, i will ask the other questions later thank you ravi um leo do you want to close the remarks uh, i appreciate uh, everyone participating uh in this uh you know the speakers the participants and the organizers especially Fabian and Peter and um uh, this is only part 1 of two sessions on this topic so i you know hope that you can all participate next week where uh we hope we will have elaboration of these issues and then uh of course in the ontology summit itself but in the meantime uh you know make your comments available in the distribution list that are addressing these issues uh, thanks all thank you thank you